welcome to The Ear. My name is Lily Glazer, and I'm an audio reporter for The Spectator. Today, however, my main identifier is as a Middle Eastern Studies major at Barnard College. For my first class in the Middle Eastern Studies department in Knox Hall, we were assigned a reading citing Orientalism by Edward Said. To be honest, I did not do the reading. Rather, I looked online for the spark notes, and I happened to find out that Said was a former Columbia professor. I always have a bit of a starstruck feeling when I learn a scholar I'm reading worked at Columbia or Barnard. My curiosity was piqued. Edward Said is a recurring character in my academic life, appearing in course syllabi, Arabic textbooks, and in my recommended tab on YouTube. His ideas have become integral to my academic pursuits and world understanding. You may be wondering, Edward said what? Who is this man? I was drawn in by the legend, the idea of the man, and his life on our Columbia campus. I wanted to learn about Said as a human. By looking to the past and listening to the people in his life, I hope to understand how Said's perspective continues to impact this place, Columbia, and beyond. Why is it still important to think about Said on the 20th anniversary of his death? Part 1. The Past Edward Said was born in 1935 in Jerusalem. He grew up moving between Palestine, Lebanon, and Egypt until he was expelled from a British school in Cairo for quote-unquote misbehavior and was sent across the pond to a prestigious boarding school in Massachusetts. After studying at a multitude of elite institutions, he received a doctorate in literature from Harvard University. He then became an assistant professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia in 1963, where he remained for the entirety of his professional career until his death in 2003, following a long battle with leukemia. Said's experience of displacement and exile from Palestine profoundly influenced his life as an intellectual. He began his robust body of work focusing on the correspondences of Polish author Joseph Conrad, an author who intimately felt the implications of colonialism and imperialism which was the subject of Said's first publication, Joseph Conrad and the Fiction of Autobiography. However, it wasn't until the Arab defeat in the 1967 Arab-Israeli War that Edward Said reconnected with the Arab world. This event served as a catalyst for Said both inside and outside the classroom. In 1967, he turned toward research, specifically extensive contemplation of the relationship between the West and the Middle East and the impact of colonial myth-making. He began writing and becoming vocal on the issue of Palestine. His writing and advocacy went hand in hand, and he became one of the most influential spokespeople for Palestine at a time when legitimizing the Palestinian identity was seen as radical. He served as an advisor to and critic of Yasser Arafat, the chairman of the Palestine Liberation Organization. Said was also a member of the Palestinian National Council from 1977 to 1991, and his book, The Question of Palestine, was critical in sparking a debate on Palestine throughout the United States. Said's politics were grounded in his literary prowess and facilities as a cultural critic. His preeminent work, Orientalism, brought to light the systemic misrepresentations and distortions created by the West about the Middle East. 
He discussed how the West, Europe, and the United States manufactured an image of the Middle East, Asia, and North Africa that serves to essentialize, denigrate, and exotify societies to fortify imperial domination and legitimize colonial projects. By perpetuating an idea of exotic and backward people, the West is able to both define itself as well as create an enemy other. In the introduction to Orientalism, Said wrote about how this manifests in his life as a Palestinian in the United States. The life of an Arab-Palestinian in the West, particularly in America, is disheartening. There exists here an almost unanimous consensus that, politically, he does not exist, and when it is allowed that he does, it is either as a nuisance or as an Oriental. The web of racism, cultural stereotypes, political imperialism, dehumanizing ideology holding in the Arab or the Muslim is very strong indeed, and it is this web which every Palestinian has come to feel as his uniquely punishing destiny. The erasure experienced by Palestinians and what he experienced as an Arab in the United States deeply impacted his politics and writing. However, Said was able to find community at Columbia among unlikely collaborators. Part 2. The People Edward Said, Columbia A little bit of searching led me to Andrew Rubin, the co-editor of the selected works of Edward Said, 1966-2006, to as well as Said's former doctoral student and research assistant. Who better to describe Said's scholarly process than someone who was involved in that very undertaking? Serendipitously, when I reached out to Rubin, he was returning to campus for the first time in 15 years. I talked to Rubin after he'd spent a long day visiting the Edward Said archival collection at the Rare Book and Manuscript Library on the sixth floor of Butler Library, just a few steps away from the Edward W. Said reading room. I would eventually spend my own fair share of time digging through Said's old documents in that library. I asked what brought Ruben back to campus. Well, I'm a visiting scholar right now. I was a professor at Georgetown for many years. Um, and uh, I'm excited to be back here to work on his, looking through his archive, his, his materials for hopefully uh, producing a collection, a new collection of his writings, as well as a book I'm working on. Uh, that brings together his work alongside the work of the German-Jewish intellectual, Hannah Arendt, um, uh, as a way of understanding the history of Islamophobia and the history of European anti-Semitism together, because they both obviously emerge from the same place, which is Europe. I wanted to know how Rubin established this connection and what it was like being a part of this famous professor's world. He had an extraordinary amount of energy. Uh, it was contagious. Uh, he could be very, he was very, I found him very funny. Uh, he was um, also very, he was very quite animated. Um, he deeply, he would get deeply anxious before his lectures um, and do an extraordinary amount of research, um, um, preparation for his classes, which was kind of, seems to me, needless. And one of the most interesting things for me was going, when he asked me to, so go find him. Go get all the New York Times articles that Thomas Friedman has written in the past year. And I would do that, drop them off with his doorman, Billy. And the following day, there would be an article in The Guardian that would appear 
on Tom, you know, Thomas Friedman and, and his representation of the least. So it was kind of like I was living in a Garcia Marquez novel. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was kind of magically surreal. Marquez, the author best known for writing 100 Years of Solitude, is also known for popularizing the magical realism genre. What Rubin seemed to mean was that working with Said brought magic to the mundane. To Rubin, Said's exceptional level of productivity was his superpower. I was in charge at one point of flipping the cassette tape for a three-day conversation he was having with the conductor, Daniel Barenboim. So I was sitting there privy to this conversation between the two that would later become his book, Parallels and Paradoxes, and served as the basis for the work that they would do in establishing this orchestra called the East-West Tehran, which brought together Israeli musicians, Palestinian musicians together as a way of um, as, as, as a way of, as a way of orchestrating and developing this form of cultural understanding and co- coexistence. And you know, because I remember Baron once said it best in this interview. He said uh, to tell the musicians, "This is through Syrian, Lebanese, Israeli, Turkish, Palestinian." He said, "I don't care what your religion is." I don't care what your nationality is. I don't care what your gender is. I don't care what your sexuality is. I need all to play the exact same C minor. The day after my conversation with Ruben was the next lecture in the Said Memorial Lecture Series, Education Through Music, a legacy of Edward W. Said on February 23rd. A few members of the West Eastern Devon Orchestra, founded in 1999 by Edward Said and Daniel Berenbaum, would be playing to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Saeed's death. Along with all his other achievements, Saeed was also an accomplished musician. So, Claire Schnatterbeck, Spectator's Director of Podcasting and Audio, and I headed up to Lenfest Center for the Arts on 129th Street for an evening of learning about Saeed and music. Columbia professor Rashid Khalidi opened the event. Though many Columbia students know his name from sitting on the wait list for the lauded History of the Modern Middle East, he had a more personal reason for moderating the lecture and panel with the musicians. Why am I standing here tonight moderating this event? Um, it's not because I'm the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies and Literature. Um, it's because I had known Edward since my brother Idris, who was at that time a Columbia undergraduate, introduced me to him at uh, Chock Full of Nuts on the corner of 116th Street in Amsterdam. My brother was working there and he introduced me to this is professor you should meet. So, um, I later found out that Edward's mother, Hilda, and my mother played bridge together in Beirut. I didn't know him personally. Um, I first met Meister Barenboim at Edward Said's hospital bedside. I think it was Rush Memorial Hospital in Chicago, um, where Edward fell ill sometime in the ni- early 90s, I believe, while he was giving a lecture in Chicago. Uh, they already developed a long standing friendship, the two of them. And Mona and I got to know Daniel in subsequent years as he and Edward first came up with the idea of the West Eastern Divan. Many people are a bit shocked or skeptical when they learn that Edward Said, a Palestinian, and Daniel Berenbaum, an Argentinian-Israeli conductor, formed a friendship and created a joint venture. I personally didn't know if the orchestra was a bit like putting a band-aid over a bullet hole. However, Professor Khalidi addressed these trepidations at the end of his opening statements. I'm going to conclude by saying something that, that I think is important. Neither Edward nor Daniel was naive. Neither of them thought that bringing together a few gifted
positions would lead to an end to the brutal struggle in Palestine. They both knew that. What they did believe was that music could serve as a bridge for understanding and education and as a basis for a more humanistic and just world. That was their agenda. They weren't going to try and build that peace in Palestine. I promise you. Neither of those were. Daniel today, nor Edward, before he passed, had any such illusions. Uh, what they were trying to do was simpler and narrower and, and more attainable, I think. Berenbaum and Said's collaboration was unorthodox. Their friendship transcended human-made borders and historical animosity. The two of them saw the possibility within music and literature. Engaging through the arts was seen as a creative solution to bring people together and simply bear witness to each other's humanity. There is a huge sense of expectation here at the Royal Albert Hall tonight. And that's because we're playing host to some of the most significant musicians on the world stage. The maestro of maestros, Daniel Barenboim and his legendary West Eastern Divan Orchestra. Part three, perspective. Edward Said lived his life advocating for justice. And an educator and a beautiful, sorry, an educator and a humanist, he challenged his students and demanded excellence in everything they did. As a Palestinian who cared about his people, he sought to empower and encourage encourage them to receive a high-quality education and to demonstrate their limitless talents in every field, in every part of the world. Edward Said believed the essence of a good education is humanistic and that excellence is only achieved through discipline, perseverance, and focus. That was Mariam Said, Edward Said's widow, giving her opening remarks at the memorial lecture. Being a humanist was clearly central to Edward's identity. But in everyday application, I was unsure of what humanism exactly entailed. If I wanted to understand Said, I felt like I needed to know what living life in a humanist way even meant. It came up when Claire and I managed to chat with Khalidi after the memorial lecture and when I talked with Ruben. What is a humanist? Well, there are many different kinds of humanists. There's a Eurocentric form of humanism, which he disputes, right? Um, he, and the Orientalism was very much in a, uh, a reconsideration or uh, a challenge to the hegemony of European humanism. How can you divide, you know, he, how can you divide people, make divisions between human beings humanely? So he was very interested in establishing a new form of humanism, not a European humanism that was Eurocentric, but a, a kind of humanism that uh, was, was, was based upon a more, uh, an exilic understanding, uh, an understanding of the world as from a different perspective, as, from a detached perspective, from a perspective that wasn't nationalistic, that wasn't essentialist, 
didn't see, that didn't, that, that, that noticed the overlapping connections between human beings as opposed to what Sanhamon Engine calls the clash of civilizations, right? Um, why do civilizations necessarily have to clash? They don't. Humanism places emphasis on humans themselves, not the outside factors that divide us. It focuses on common human needs. Uh, if you see them as civilizations as monolithic, right, or singular, then you, know, you, you, know, you don't see the diversity, the multiplicity, uh, the, the, of, 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 of culture. Um, and so his humanism is, I think, ultimately based upon a kind of uh, itinerant, wandering, exilic kind of consciousness that was very much out of place, right? Because um, he was born into a world that didn't exist and no longer exists, the colonial world, and then still doesn't exist as Palestine. Um, so that perspective... So I think the humanism would very much come from would emphasize that kind of detached uh, cosmopolitan perspective uh, that emphasizes the overlapping, intertwined connections between human beings rather than the opposing uh, factional, identitarian uh, uh, aspects that are emphasized today. Out of Place was the title of Said's memoir. The experience of exile was a source of deep pain as well as power. To Said, the metaphorical and literal experience of being displaced, alienated, and othered provided a crucial perspective for analyzing the world, enabling a more global and humanistic viewpoint. To learn more about how exile contributes to someone's worldview, I sat down with Barnard Comparative Literature Professor Hisham Matar presenter at the 2018 Said Memorial Lecture, and an author who has written on his own experience with displacement. Matar, who has been living in exile since fleeing his home in Libya, touched upon the effects of being an outsider. In a world where, at least when I was growing up, I'm afraid that atmosphere lingers and has deepened, and an argument could be made that it has become more uh, pervasive, you know, that I felt, well, there are no-go areas here. Because I am from a certain part of the world, there are certain books and paintings and pieces of music that I'm not invited, really, to look at. Um, Or that a decision has been made that those pieces belong to the enemy. They belong to the colonizer. And therefore, they're not really my business. Um... Those kind of narrow registers, you know, or that because of who I am, uh, whatever my affiliations might be, cultural, ethnic, you know, whatever, all those affiliations, that they somehow predetermine what it is that I can be interested in, what it is that I can aspire to create and do. All of those kind of limitations that are imposed on us primarily by ourselves, we are the, we are the chief <laughs> we are if there's a tyrant on us in this field it's usually ourselves but also others uh you know institutions other people a general climate if you can call it that a general sort of intellectual climate that surrounds us there is a certain relatability to the experience of exile even to those that have not experienced it in the literal sense i mean i think you know for better or for worse a lot of us know 
you know what it's like to to uh, to live in the moments of of contradiction, you know, where various forces seem to be pushing us, you know, up against ourselves, you know, um, and um, I think a lot of us know what's involved in the gesture of translation. Um, we know, for example, that the the most profound, sincere emotions that we feel um, and ideas that we have don't emerge in language. You know, we have to find words for them to translate them. And we are aware that to live a life is to be forever um, uh, modulating the distance that exists between feeling and expression. You know, the whole history of literature is about that. It's about that distance. Saeed's experience as an exile, having to straddle different cultures and feeling a lack of true belonging transposed onto his consciousness the importance of perspective and the strength of listening to alternative experiences and points of view. By using the word counterpoint, Edward also makes sure that what isn't said in a word may be as important as what is said. But Edward also used the word counterpoint to, to describe the life of an exile, writing, most people, and here I quote, most people are principally aware of at least one culture, one setting, one home. Exiles are aware of at least two, and this plurality of vision gives rise to an awareness of simultaneous dimensions and awareness that to borrow a phrase from music is contrapointed. Said's appreciation for nuance often put him at odds with those determined to see the world in black and white. Said's partnership with Baron was one such example. Though present at the 1993 Oslo Accords, he was an outspoken critic of the peace agreement. Though he was a staunch advocate of Palestine, he wrote at length on the plight of the Jews and the European colonial roots of anti-Semitism. As both Said's identity and the focus of his work were deeply political, his ability to navigate the gray area was seen as both a strength and a source of criticism. Part 4. Takeaways Edward Said's example, I think, for me, is, is someone who has managed to liberate himself of these restrictions. And um, there is, of course, a very powerful analogy between that and between his political writings um, and how he, he was inspired and he was outraged by a situation of inequality, right? A situation of occupation dispossession. Um, but I think there was something very powerful how that then also connected to his intellectual appetites, right? That he didn't believe in this sort of open territory of discourse where we could be mutually free but also respectful of one another. Edward Said engaged in risky intellectual discourse and spoke candidly about his beliefs on Palestine. Though Said was by no means the only person to speak on Palestine and the Middle East, his platform was bolstered by his well-to-do family, elite education, and authoritative British New York accent.
I know I'm not easily classified. I'm a Palestinian on the one hand, and I'm part of the most establishment world possible. Columbia was his professional home for 40 years, and the university environment opened the door to many opportunities. But Saeed faced hate, criticism, and opposition on a daily basis. Rubin touched on this. The exact the country, yeah. where the public discussion of the conditions of his exile was considered off-limits. Right? It's the taboo. And he broke that taboo. He was the yeah. first intellectual to break that taboo. So, of course, he, he, he made it possible to speak about Palestine in a certain kind of way. And much of our discussion, the public discussion, we owe to him. So he was constantly under attack. I mean, his office in Hamilton Hall at the time was firebombed um, uh, by some militant group. Um, and uh, someone put a, they put a cigar, a cigar out in his chair and poured his ink all over and stole books. And he was the only professor that had bulletproof glass in his office next to the president, apart from the president of Columbia. Um, you know, there were the, the most the most serious attacks were from the outside, from from people on the outside. Said's person and politics made him other, but he remained at Columbia and he continued to speak and advocate. Part 5, Findings. What remains in the wake of Said? For better or for worse, his best-known work, um, Orientalism. I don't think it's his best book, but it is definitely his most influential book, we can say. Um, you don't have to have anything to do with the Orient or the Occident, I mean, if you can imagine such an existence. But you don't have to be invested, in other words, in this, in this question. Uh, to find that work interesting because the work is one of the things that the work is really fascinated by is how when we come at anything how we cast our shadow on it Edward Said's life and logic explains how our personal experiences and beliefs can become an asset so we in attempting to observe something our subjective existence uh, means that we are also bringing to bear perhaps certain assumptions or certain um, uh, preconceived ideas about us. Um, I, for, for what it's worth, don't think that's always a negative thing. I think actually our subjectivity is a source of excitement too, right? Um, but um, but uh, you know, that's, that's another question. You know, it could be prejudicial, but it could also be uh, enlightening, um, um, but you know that's that's a theme that runs across Edward Said's work. You know what it is that we bring to to whatever it is that we're looking at. Throughout my research, I began to consider my own reasoning for taking on this search. I spent several days in Columbia's rare book and manuscript library, rifling through Said's papers. From the many book reviews and newspaper clippings, I felt a certain closeness to Said. We can learn so much from the items people keep. Though I only looked at four of the 200 or so boxes in Columbia's archive, I began to gain a greater understanding of the inner workings of his mind. Or maybe just my own. We have all experienced varying degrees of otherness and feeling out of place. 
for Edward Said and Hisham Matar, this exilic experience has created a space for us to be critical of the status quo and posits new understandings of the world that being a part of the in-group typically blind us from seeing. Edward Said was an energetic, anxious, and funny man. He was a thinker, musician, friend, writer, and Palestinian. Though many will never engage with Said beyond a quick gander at Orientalism, I have found his philosophy, outlook, and spirit greatly motivating for me as a student. My hope is that by learning a bit more about Professor Said, we can expand our capacity for understanding. Through incorporating Said's lens, criticism, and curiosity, we can optimize our time as students. Said inspires us to listen, learn, and challenge our beliefs and assumptions. I leave you with a quote from Said's introduction to Reflections on Exile. I have argued that exile can produce rancor and regret, as well as a sharpened vision. What has been left behind may either be mourned, or it can be used to provide a different set of lenses. Since almost by definition exile and memory go together, it is what one remembers of the past and how one remembers it that determines how one sees the future. Thank you for listening to The Ear. This episode was produced by Matthew Schwitzer and reported by me, Lily Glazer. The voice acting in this episode was performed by Matthew Schwitzer. The original music in this episode was composed by Obi Akoli. Additional research support from Claire Schnatterbach. Follow us on Instagram at, at @spectatorpodcast and subscribe to The Ear on Spotify to get notified when we release new episodes. Oh,